Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'll be the host of this episode. And today, I'm very excited to be introducing our, our guest is David Demers. So David is the executive director of CNIB Quebec, and he also has a new title. So first of all, David, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. It's very nice to be here with you. Thank you. Thanks. Can you tell me just a little bit, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about your new role within the CNIB. Yeah, definitely. I just recently um, uh, was given the privilege of taking on the role of executive lead for Frontier Accessibility. So I'm still going to continue being the uh, director of Quebec and and, uh, stay focused on success for the Quebec division, but also uh, Frontier Accessibility Canada-wide is our accessibility consulting services. So we um, can help uh, government uh, organizations or uh, uh, corporations to become more accessible, whether it is with their, through their website, uh, through their customer service, their, um, their actual buildings, making sure that they're accessible. So uh, we can help them uh, make sure that they meet all the highest standards of accessibility. That's uh, that's amazing. And we're going to dive into accessibility a little bit later in the conversation. So I'm going to have uh, and have a few questions for you around that. So um, I was hoping we can kick this off with just talking a little about your personal story um, of how you lost your vision and how that inevitably, in fact, impacted your career at the time as a photographer. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I was a fully sighted person um, in a past life, as I like to say, and um I was the type of person who had all of those preconceived myths um, in my mind about blind people. You know, I thought blind people with the white cane are uh, totally in darkness, basically. And I, you know, had all those those misconceptions, you know, not really knowing what blind people can do and so on. And I, you know, I had a very sighted career as a professional photographer and, and a chef as well for many, many years. Um, so I, I, I suddenly lost my vision about 10 years ago in, in 2009, and um, it, it was quite sudden, actually. Um, I, I literally drove to work in the morning and couldn't drive back home. So that, it was quite, quite a shock. Um, and, and from there, my life took uh, a whole new turn. <laughs> is, is that something that, like, what actually happened? Or is that something you want to dive into? Because, I mean, that's, you know, vision loss for most people tends to be a you know, progressive type of thing, unless there's some sort of trauma. In your case, do you, is it something that you want to dive into or leave that for I another time? I don't mind at all because, you know, I, I feel that through my experience, I, I can help others in my situation. And that's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing today with the CNIB, because when I lost my vision, I realized all of these misconceptions that society had about blind people and I wanted to prove society wrong in a way and show that you know I still want to contribute to society I still want to participate and and work and and have a a fulfilling and flourishing life Um, so I I was able to achieve that life for myself and I want other people to get it as well Um, so I don't mind at all talking about my situation and and so essentially what I have is um a, a congenital disease called Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy. And um, we did have a great uncle who had vision problems, but it was back in those days when medicine wasn't so advanced, so they didn't know what he had. And, you know, so I, we kind of discovered that we had this disease in my family uh, through me. And um, it, it's a disease that 
can affect uh, mostly males uh, around the age of 20 to 30 years old. And uh, so I, and it's quite sudden, like I said, I, I, I lost, uh, I was starting to have trouble with one eye, but nobody really knew what was going on. And then a few months later, the other eye kicked in. And that's the day where I drove to work and couldn't uh, drive back home. Um, and so what happened is I lost my central vision. So in, in, in the center of my vision, I can't see anything at all. And in my peripheral vision, I just see shapes and shadows. And that was like in the blink of an eye. Um, but then as the, the years went on, it kind of progressed and, and got worse, uh, sort of, but not necessarily progressively, like once every year or two, it would go down really quickly, like from one day to the next. And um, so I really had to adapt. It, it was, you know, from one day to the next, I was working like 60, 50, 60 hours a week to uh, kind of feeling like a prisoner in my own home and, and not being able to do anything. Uh, so it was, it was a tough journey. And I, I had to get through that. Um, and, um, you know, I think I'm living proof that it's doable. <laughs> so, you know, that's a good segue into our next topic because so you've suddenly found yourself with, you know, limited vision or, or significant vision loss and then went from working, you know, full-time or, or full-time and a half, it seems, down mm-hmm. to, like you said, feeling like a prisoner in your own home. Um, you've said before that roughly... 30% of blind people, and I'm assuming this statistic is in Canada, but it might be similar elsewhere as well. Um, they're only about 30% of blind people actually have a job. So uh, I was hoping you can talk to that a little bit and maybe why that is. Is it, is it completely because, you know, people can't do anything or they don't want to do anything? Or is it because employers are maybe not set up to be more accessible and to provide the training? What are your thoughts on that? It is um, a big, big aspect that I discovered through my vision loss journey. It, it's the, the fact that hardly any blind people are working and contributing to society. And the statistic you mentioned is roughly the same in the United States, in Australia, and in many other developed countries. Uh, it, it seems like we're the disability group that, I don't want to say got left behind, but you know, it seems like we uh, weren't as successful as a community to to find work and convince employers that we're employable. And it's part of the, the shock that I went through when I lost my vision was the fact that blind people were not independent financially. And, and, and because of that, you know, we're not able to participate as much and employers seem to have this stigmatization towards blind people where they just don't believe or don't see how we're able to work. Um, so, there's there's a lot to this you know there's the fact that um employers often don't believe we can work there's the fact that the blind community has been completely discouraged over the past many decades because of the inability to find work and to find adapted you know workplaces um so it it, and then you move on to the fact that you know uh, payment terminals aren't even accessible so we don't even have the ability to pay so it you know we don't have the ability to work. We don't have the ability to pay. Um, it, it feels like we're not members of society in that sense. And um, that to me was a big shock. And I, I just felt like I had to do something about it. I had to voice those concerns and be part of the solution in any way I can. So, okay, there's a few different directions we can we can go from here for <laughs> sure. And, and, and we will. The uh, Okay, why don't we... I just wanted to take a quick step back. We'll kind of put a pin in what you were talking about, about accessibility and stigmatization. Um, 
as the executive director of CNIB Quebec and as well with your new role, um, what is, so I guess with your new role in accessibility, you were highlighting that, but the CNIB as an organization in general, is it more focused on, you know, training modalities for people with low vision? Is it advocacy? Is it education? Is it all of these things? I mean, you know, when people donate money to research, we think, hey, it's going toward research. But the CNIB is kind of tackling a whole different realm of that problem in parallel, right? So I'm just curious, the CNIB mission or, uh, yeah, I guess the mission of the CNIB would fall under what, again, is a training, uh, training advocacy? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because in the past uh, 100 years, we realized that not a lot had changed with regards to the employability of blind people, for example. And we realized that in, in the past, we were really treating blind people like individual cases of charity or, or people that have a certain basket of needs, whether it's training or, and, and we would provide it. Um, and and it, was, it was very important what we were doing, but we realized that we were treating blind people like people who are in need instead of celebrating the capacity of blind people. And so when we made that realization, it completely changed our perspective on how we need to pursue our mission in the future. And, and employability came on the forefront because we, we know that, that, you know, working in society is really an important part of feeling like we're, we're participating and contributing. But to be able to work, that entails, you know, literacy. It entails a school, uh, going education. It entails um, being able to uh, use technology, for example. So all of those things started popping up in our mission. So our, our big strategic ambitions are employment, um, boosting uh, engagement in the world of work, uh, improving access to technology um, and advocacy. You know, those are our advocacy for equality. Um, those are really our, our core driving pillars in our mission. And so essentially, you know, we're a very wide ranging organization. We offer uh, training for the blind community. We offer psychosocial support uh, for people whose vision loss is recent. We have, you know, sports and leisure activities. Uh, there's a whole wide, wide range of things that we do. And historically, we would do uh, vision loss rehabilitation, uh, like learning orientation and mobility um, and, and um, um, daily living um, activities and, and so on. That, that has segmented off into our vision loss rehab division. But so in, in the community, we offer a lot of training, a lot of support for like iPhone, computer, um, peer support groups leisure activities, um, but as well, we do a lot of advocacy. So we're very involved in making sure that there's robust accessibility laws um, that, uh, you know, especially during the pandemic that, you know, accessible vaccination procedures, accessible procurement. So there's so many different sides, uh, whether in, in behind the scenes or in the forefront in the media that we, we work on to bring to the forefront, you know, the needs of uh, the blind community and to celebrate our capacity, like I said. So, you know, it's interesting you talk about employment as one of the uh, core focuses uh, of what CNIB is doing now and recognizing that because I think that's probably something in the past that's been under-recognized, right? The, yeah. It, you, know, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to give someone with low vision, uh, whatever, a tax credit or try to help them financially in some way or provide these aids, but... 
culture code. And what the author of that book, uh, he pointed out a lot of things, but one of the things that he pointed out was that in North America, at least, we strongly associate our personal identity with the work that we do, right? Which is also probably why many people have a hard time retiring. Right? If you're, if you're a, you know, uh, someone who, you know, works for 40 years and then retire, uh, retires, sometimes people feel, they feel lost, right? It, it, work is uh, a big part of our identity. So when somebody loses their eyesight or, or a significant uh, percentage of their vision, you know, they're also, and then loses their job on top of that, because of that, it's, it's really like a double whammy to the, the personal identity. And I think that with the CNIB focusing on um, employment as a uh, as a major branch of what they're doing, I think is a really um, it's think it's a really smart thing to do. That maybe people don't think about uh, individuals might not think about that as a um, as a focus that they would what be doing. What you said that. there, it's really at the core of our our thinking. You know, uh, like you said about the identity that we have through the work that we do, and you know, it's really we want blind people to have that opportunity to be able to dream like anybody else to um you know i'm one of those people who believes that you know we probably work too much but i um i, I like to try to find work that that is in line with my passion and uh like today i feel like i have a mission in my work so it doesn't feel like work um and that's how we we find our identity and and uh i, I think that's so important so that's why we truly believe that blind people should be able to dream big, just like anybody else. For sure. For sure. So I wanted to uh, circle back to accessibility. So with your new role and as well as just a, um, you know, a wealth of experience related to accessibility, I was wondering if you have any stories that you want to share with the audience listening to this. I know in the past we talked a little bit about, um, accessible terminals, and you brought, brought that up as well, payment terminals. Uh, I, I had a note here about insulin pumps. I think you brought that up as well. So just wondering if you wanted to share any of these thoughts with the audience about accessibility, the state of accessibility in general, and maybe where some of the needs are. Definitely. Well, the two things that you mentioned about uh, the insulin pumps and payment terminals, those are two things that I think were, again, like a shock to me. Um, the fact that blind people don't have the ability to pay in an accessible manner was just to me outrageous. Um, it, it just seems to me like it's something that should be considered unacceptable. And if everybody would know about that, it probably would be considered unacceptable. Uh, it, it's, it's a fundamental piece of being, a, of being independent. Um, so that, that was to me one of my first realizations about something has to be done uh, for our community. And I don't have diabetes, but I know that diabetes are, um, is one of the leading causes, one of the four leading cons causes of blindness in the world and in, in developing countries. Um, and one of the big reasons for this is blind people aren't able to control their insulin properly. There's no accessible devices. And that to me also is outrageous in the sense that, you know, medical profet there's kind of like, um, a breakdown in the continuum of medical care there where one professional sort of told the other <laughs> that, uh, hey, my, my patient has diabetes and, and vision issues and needs a solution to control their insulin. To me, this, this needs to be solved right away. And CNIB is working very hard on this because during the pandemic, the problem um, became even more exponential because people didn't have 
um, attendants that could come to their home and help them with that. Um, so those, those things to me were very shocking. Uh, but accessibility in general, in my mind, is um, there's no reason why we can't dream big, like I was saying before. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with technology, leveling the playing field in some sense. Uh, one of the big issues we often find is that the technology does exist to make a workstation accessible and, and to adapt all the needs for a blind person to be able to be just as efficient as anyone else. But what often happens is it's the internal systems that are used by companies that aren't compatible with the technologies that adapt a workstation. Uh, so because of that, it often limits very much um, where a blind person can work. Um, and so they often consider that it's too expensive to adapt those systems. So it, it's, um, it's something that accessibility needs to be integrated into the design thinking of things. Um, and, and then we would be able to empower a whole group of people in, in, in the world that, aren't, that are being kind of left behind. Um, so to me, accessibility you know, is often more a matter of compatibility and, and communication between devices than, uh, and, and mindsets of people. Um, but the, the state of accessibility is certainly getting better. There's a lot of countries that are implementing new laws uh, and um, we just need, need to make sure that those laws are being applied and that they, they are robust enough to have a significant enough consequences if they're not applied. Um, but um, it's a shame also that it has to go through legislation. Uh, it should be a social value that we share. Okay, so I have, a, <laughs> I have like 15, 15 stories that come to mind. I'll, I'll stick with one or two here. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about the um, kind of a fundamental accessible right to be able to pay, right? It just reminded me of uh, back when I was a student, a uh, graduate student in Montreal, and I had to, you know, take the metro to go from where I live down downtown to to get to uh, the university. And there was a handful of times where, you know, I, I had low vision, but I, I wasn't using a cane at the time. Um, but I was using just navigating, but with low vision. And I would always go to, you know, pay for my uh, metro pass uh, up at the, the the booth where the attendant was. Right now, they put in these machines that are self serve, and so that's great. So there was a handful of times where the attendants like, Hey, no, you have to go over to the machine. And cause they're trying, I mean, they're trying to get people on board with using that. So mm -hmm. I go over to the machine and I'm completely lost. Right. Like, I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't see what the buttons say. I can't read what the screen says. Then I go over and I'm like, well, I, I don't see very well. I need some help. And, uh, and now to their credit, most of the time um, they were able to, to assist me. Uh, but there was the, the odd time where it was like, well, I'm sorry, you have to use the machine too bad. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. uh, another thing you were saying, it, you need to, uh, we need to, as a society, start thinking about accessibility in, in, in design in the first place. And um, I didn't say this to you before, but one of our upcoming guests on the show is the accessibility lead at Microsoft. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> he's got a really good, um, really good presentation online, a good video you can find on YouTube. Um, and we'll probably share that video on whatever we um, do the recording with him and, and publish that episode as well. But it, it's really interesting because Microsoft has really taken that approach, it seems. And, uh, you know, they give an example, you know, this is a non-vision example that I'm going to share, but there are vision related examples as well. But uh, people who are 
you know, quadriplegic and they've made Windows, uh, I think it's Windows 10 accessible just by eye movement that you could mm-hmm. move your eyes and blink and whatnot to be able to control that, that accessibility. But what they're saying is that's actually um, spilled over into becoming a useful feature for, let's say, surgeons who are trying to do something mm-hmm. on a computer, when, but they're operating, they don't have to take their gloves off and, and touch things. And uh, I'm probably not explaining that that well, but what they were finding is that when you start helping or, or making the initial design accessible to certain groups, in many cases, you actually improve the you know overall design for other populations, right? Um, it also makes you think about just voice to text and text to voice. I mean, you years ago, the, the dragon naturally speaking uh, programs that where you could talk and, you know, your Microsoft Word document would be, you know, type it out and, and whatever you were saying, well, this function is now widely used in, in cell phones for, for hands-free for people who are not visually impaired, right? So um, some of these, like you said, design thinking around accessibility um, not only can actually help people who need the accessibility functions, but can actually uh, be beneficial in general. So I'm going off on a long tangent here. I want to uh, circle back to stigmatization. So you mentioned um, the idea of stigmatization around blindness, and you have a wealth of knowledge around the history as well um, of blindness and stigmatization. And I was hoping maybe you could you know, take that uh, take that thread and run with it a little bit. Sure. I'm, I'm actually quite fascinated by the history or condition uh, of blind people in general and in Canada and North America. I've done a lot of reading about it and it's, it's really a topic that interests me, but also helps me get some perspective on, on my, my job because, um, you know, they often say history repeats itself or, you know, we want to make sure we don't make the same mistakes in the past or whatnot. So I like to have that understanding. And, um, I often think that um, we can kind of understand where the stigmatization, stigmatization comes from. Um, in the past, um, you know, over 100, 150 years ago, blind people were typically put into asylums. Um, and that that's kind of sounds like a nasty way of putting it, but that essentially that's what it is. They were dormitories where they were left to live there, and sometimes they were given some education, very basic uh, education. But you know, we didn't know what to do with blind people, and we would put them in homes like that. Um, uh, except versus in in rural areas, it wouldn't happen as much. They they would tend to find ways for blind people to help around the farm and and so on. Um, but in Canada, this has been going on for a long time. There are still there were some provinces where, going all the way up to the 1970s and early 80s, uh, there were still uh, these types of um, residential homes or asylums for blind people. Um, they they ended up being called schools, um, and and then the, now they phased out, and there's not really any more a dormitory type part of it, and, uh, except when there's uh, several different conditions, um, when people have more than one condition on top of blindness. Um, but essentially, you know, I think that because of that, because blind people were in those homes and, and didn't go out much, they society wasn't very exposed to seeing people with white canes or with guide dogs and, and such. So because we weren't very exposed and, and it's only been about, you know, maybe 40 years now that we're trying to integrate blind people into society. Uh, I, I think it's just not enough 
exposure has happened. And uh, that kind of explains why we meet presidents of corporations and they say, well, I don't understand or see how a blind person could actually work if they don't see their screen or uh, things like that. So th those kind of like deep rooted uh, ways of how we used to do things kind of explain how or why the condition is today or, or how it is today. Um, and I'm not sure what part of that you would like me to expand on, but um, it, it's interesting to me to, to learn that, um, you know, it's been so long, you know, going up to the 1970s that blind people were still being put into homes. Oh, for sure. I mean, again, we don't have to uh, do a deep dive on that. You can probably do an entire dissertation on that. that <laughs> I'm, sure people, I'm sure people have, right? I mean, I'm sure people have. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to think that in such recent history, I like to think of the early ages as recent history because that was when I was born, right? In 82. So <laughs> I don't like to think of it as too long ago. But uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to think that um, that was the condition. And, you know, for sure, when you bring up the idea that, uh, you know, corporate executives might not, you know, my question, well, how can this person basically be useful in my corporation? I think part of it's just education side of things too, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think the CNIB and other organizations are, are working toward that as well. So I think that's really good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about people using, you know, a cane or a dog. In your case, uh, it's a dog, guide dog, correct? Yeah, I have a guide dog. It's been a little over a year now, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And good. I, I just, and, 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 any stories to share about the guide dog? Any, <laughs> uh, I, I guess, how has it, has it been really um you know impactful i guess in your immobility in, in in what i guess how has the kind dog helped you it's been very impactful what the thing that i do regret is you know i, I basically got my dog and a few months later we were in lockdown due to, due to the pandemic so I, I didn't get to travel as much as i normally would have so i'm you know that sometimes disappoints me but i have been able to be in a lot of situations with my dog that truly have revealed to me that this was the the best choice I ever made, uh, you know, and the best example I have is in the winter, you know, I, I'm not totally blind. I, I still see like very, very blurry shapes and shadows in my peripheral vision. Um, but in the winter, everything is just completely white. It's like, instead of being in darkness, I'm in whiteness and uh, I can't see if there's a snow bank in front of me or anything like that. And with the dog, it was just an amazing experience last winter. I would just like fluidly, walk around snowbanks and uh, and I was just like blown away by that um, and, and I just really enjoyed now that I have a faster walking speed um, I, I literally now just take walks for enjoyment uh, something that I wouldn't do with a cane it just wouldn't feel pleasurable to just kind of that's my, me personally like I, 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 I have no problem you know I'm sure people can take walks with their cane but to me walking with the dog is just much more pleasurable so uh, it, it's amazing. It, it, that sense of, you know, companionship that you have too is just priceless. Um, so I, I love it. Um, the fact that, you know, sometimes she'll really stop when there's something dangerous in front of me that I'm just always impressed, always very impressed. It's, uh, you know, um, before we wrap up, I just want to touch on um, what you're talking about, just taking a walk. That's something that I think that people, a lot of people don't, recognize to just the idea of going out and taking a walk, getting fresh air, right? So in yeah. my 
previous work environment, you know, it's say, Hey, I'm going to walk down the street and get some lunch. And like, well, I'll go if there's someone else going with me. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, or just to, you know, take a walk and go get some fresh air, get some sunshine at lunchtime. It becomes, it becomes a, a, a task. Uh, yeah. It's something, okay. It's not a, now with a dog, maybe the, you know, it alleviates that mental effort associated with just taking a walk that's supposed to be relaxing. Sometimes those little walks when you have low vision are actually more taxing than whatever work you were doing before you, you took your walk. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So David, listen, uh, I think this is a good sp- spot to wrap this up. Uh, we can probably plan to do a round two at some point. Cause uh, maybe we can unpack that history and stigmatization in, in, in a mm-hmm. future episode. Uh, I think it'd be a, um, an interesting topic to dive into just to give some perspective, a little bit of uh, why we are where we are right now um, in society. But listen, I want to thank you for, for joining on the show today. Um, and is there any final words you would want to share with the audience in terms of uh, information they should check out uh, initiatives of the CNIB, et cetera? Well, that's uh, thanks for asking, and, and thank you for having me on your podcast, uh, Sean. It was really a pleasure, and I'd love to do a round two. Um, there's a lot going on at CNIB. It's uh, always so many different things, so it's good that you check out cnib.ca and that you like our Facebook page, because then you'll, you'll be up to date. Um, but, you know, if there's anybody out there who needs uh, a smartphone, for example, who can't afford it, or, or if this would be a solution that would help them be more independent with the GPS or with a text-to-speech software. You know, there's our phone it forward program that people can call us up and and um, register for that program and get a smartphone and get training on it. So, you know, if this is something that could help you be independent, go to phoneitforward.ca or cnib.ca and you can find out all about that. Man, I never even heard about that. So that's, that's interesting. I need to probably get up to, up to speed on what the CNIB is offering as well, too. So, and in uh, fact, a call to, I'll just make a call to action as well. If anybody has a smartphone to donate, we, this program depends on smartphone donations that are in relatively good condition. So please also go to phoneit4.ca to donate your uh, lightly used smartphone that could help someone. Very cool. So for everybody who's upgrading their smartphone every two or three years, then uh, that's yeah. something, some, you know, instead of giving it to your kids to play with as a toy, <laughs> like, like <laughs> I, 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 that I may or may not be guilty of doing in the past. Right. So, Hey, daddy's got his iPhone 10. Here's the iPhone 6S that you don't, <laughs> you can exactly. use that for, for playing store now. Right. So <laughs> and you um, can change the life. <laughs> that's it. David, thanks so much for, for joining me today. It's certainly a pleasure. Thank you very much, Sean. All right. Take care.